He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. What a blessing to be able to share the story of the resurrection again and what it means for us. This is a blessing. I want to I want to be able to tell you uh, a very unique story about the resurrection, a very uh, kind of story that has just come to me in the last couple of months that I've learned about, and I thought, this is too good, I have to share. Uh, This story begins 2,000 years ago. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, Pastor, we already know this one. (laughs) But no, 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 this is a different story. I mean, I'm going to get to that one, but this is a different story, but it's, it's all tied together. This, this story goes back 2,000 years ago. Now, last year, we went through the story of Jesus, and oftentimes I would give the background, right, of, of what had happened. And, of course, so this story is in that same background. This is the Romans have come and they have taken over Israel, right? And so this is part of the story of the, even his crucifixion, is that uh, they are appealing to the governor, Pontius Pilate, that's been set up, and they're saying things like, hey, he's claiming to be Lord, when we know there's only... Caesar, and so Rome's in charge, right? So this story I want to talk about is when, um, when Rome came, and they're you know, taking over the known world, and they, they are, they're coming and setting up in Israel, one of the things that happened was there were, there were factions of, of Jewish people who would rebel against them and say, nah, you're not going to rule over us, and so there is this one very well-known story of a, a group of Jewish uh, rebels who said, we are not going to allow Rome to be here, and they, and they rebelled. And the Roman leader comes to, to, uh, to defeat them, and they hole up in this fortress, in this place called Masada in the desert. And I say fortress, and what it is, it's like this large rock-like plateau. And so it, it's just high walls all the way around it. And so the Roman legion is not going to have an easy time getting to the rebels that are up there. And so they do what armies do, when they cannot break through the fortress, they set up a siege. And so they surround this area and they uh, just like, hey, we're going to wait them out. We're going to have no problem supplying our armies. The Romans were the best road uh, makers uh, of antiquity. So they're, they're bringing all their supplies, feeding their troops. And the Jewish people are just holed up, up in this, like, in Masada, this, this, uh, this, this fortress kind of a plateau out in the desert. And, and the longer they wait, as days turn into weeks, they, they start to realize that, hey, it is only a matter of time before we run out of the food in our stores. The Romans ultimately are going to be able to outlast us. And they are a people who say, and we are not going to let them come in here and defeat us when we are starved and we are weak and we can't fight back. And Because they, they, they decide we do not want them to come in and destroy us, and we certainly don't want them to come in and enslave us. Because whoever did not accept their rule could suffer that. That enslavement could mean they're working for the Roman Empire. It could also mean they're fighting in their coliseums. This was not something they wanted at all. And they decided their freedom and their choice was more important than the possible risk of slavery. And so one of the things they decided as a group was was a mass 
suicide as a statement of we will decide for ourselves our life and not the Romans. And here's the thing. They wanted, of course, to keep the Romans. They still want to, you know, even in that moment, say, Romans, you did not have control over us. So what they did is they burned some of the stores of their food to show, indeed, that, hey, we had food to burn. When we did this, we didn't do it out of desperation. We didn't do it out of weakness. We didn't do it out of despair. We did this out of rebellion to say, you don't have power over us. And so the Roman legion, of course, is stuck waiting and waiting and wondering when are they going to come out. Then after, who knows how long before they realize, wait a minute, we haven't seen fire up there in a while. We haven't heard any noise up there. And so they're just left wondering. When they finally get up there, sure enough, all the food stores except for one, one left undestroyed so the Romans could see indeed. They could have lasted longer. What was this? It was just an act of... Of rebellion. And of course, it is that quelling of rebellion that the Romans had always wanted to do, which is why the scriptures tell us there are two. Well, thieves is a common word. That word could also mean insurrectionists on either side of Jesus. They would do everything they could to publicly make sure things like this didn't happen. Well, about, uh, about 50 years ago, there were some archaeologists that went up to that place, to Masada. And they started to dig, and they started to look, and they were excavating. And what they found was indeed that one storage room, a storage room that had not been destroyed. And within that storage room, they found jars filled with, of other things, seeds. Seeds from that time of uh, dates and all kinds of other plants that were common during that time. And of course, they took those seeds with whatever else they found, and and carbon dating indeed proved them to be over 2,000 years old, that they would have been the supplies that would have been there at the time of this siege. Well, um, there was uh, a doctor from Israel. Uh, Her name is Dr. Sarah Salon. I'm just, I don't expect you to remember the names, but if you ever like, man, this is a great story. I want to hear about it. You can go back to the YouTube video and and find out their names and Google it. But Dr. Sarah Salon said, uh, I was like, you know, this is a fabulous story. And she found herself thinking, I wonder if, I wonder if I could convince some of those archaeologists to give up some of those seeds. Because you see, the date, that fruit, the date, that um, was a big part of, of, of Judean export in antiquity, was no longer a part of their nation. You see, the last tree that was based in Judea was destroyed during the Crusades, that terrible time in history where you know, people would use their religion to bear the sword and destroy other people. And so the last Crusaders who came in 800 years ago destroyed the last native date tree. And this was an important export. Like the date leaves were sometimes on the back of their coins. You know how like sometimes our quarters have different backings based on whatever it is that they, they want to represent? Sometimes that would be on the back. Of, it was an important part of their identity, kind of like uh, everywhere else. We're like, ooh, Maine blueberries? Ooh, Maine lobster? You know, like, like it was an important part of their identity. 
And so um, this doctor was asking the archaeologist, hey, could I get some seeds and see if I could grow again dates in this region, dates that are native to Judea? Because any dates grown after the Crusades would have had to have been transplanted in from other areas. And so, uh, and she, this went back and forth. So they asked, because they said, are you crazy? It's been 2,000 years. These things are long dead. These long, you're not going to get any life out of these at all. This is ridiculous. And but, so some back and forth, back and forth. And finally they said, okay, okay, we'll give some up and we'll let you use them. Which is hard to get archaeologists to give up anything that they've dug up. And so, so, so they, they let her wear that. And she partners with, uh, now she, uh, this Sarah, is, is a medical doctor. And so this is just a dream, a vision she has. So she brings on another lady named Elaine Salloway, who is a doctor for the Center for Sustainable Agriculture there. And so she gets her working because she, she knows botany. She knows plants. She knows agriculture. She partners with her to try to see if there's a way to get any life to, for these seeds to grow. And so they work with that, and they, they, they warm them up slowly, they moisturize them slowly, just trying to reintroduce them to the world. And lo and behold, one seed sprouts. One seed starts to come to life. And this tree that they could, you know, and you know how scientists are when they have a discovery or they do something they have to do, they, they give them wonderful names like, XLR-3 or something like that, right? But they decide, you know, we're going to do something a little more interesting this time. This tree planted from a 2,000-year-old seed, we're going to name after the oldest living person known. And they called this tree Methuselah. And so uh, uh, this tree grew, and they were so amazed by this. And they sent this, and they sent pictures uh, to the archaeologists. Look, look what happened. It has sprouted, and it's growing. And and they were so fascinated by this tree. But one of the things they realized is if they want this tree to produce fruit, this tree, Methuselah, is, is a male tree. Yes, plants have a gender just like us. And they need to cross-pollinate with other plants of their species in order to bear fruit. That's why over the last few years people have talked about the bee crisis, right? Because the bees will go from one plant to the next and share pollen and that helps then the, uh, uh, the, the flowers to flower and the, and the fruit trees to bear fruit. This, this helps them to reproduce. And so they asked them for some more seeds and they got 30 more date seeds. And out of those 30 seeds, six more grew. And out of those six, two were female. And so something happened that, hadn't, that they hadn't seen in Judea in a long time. And that is, in over 800 years, their own native tree. In 2,000 years, a date that hasn't been genetically modified, that hasn't been spliced or worked with with other fruits, it hasn't been changed. It is, to this day right now, you could eat dates, eat the fruit of something 2,000 years ago. I found myself seeing this, hearing this story just a couple months ago, and I found myself saying, oh, if this isn't a resurrection story, 
that something 2,000 years ago might still bear fruit for us today. And so I want to share a passage of Scripture about that. It's, it's in John chapter 12. Yes, this will be the first Sunday in my ministry. Though on Easter Sunday, I'm not reading the resurrection story. <laughs> but that's okay. Nancy read it great for us uh, today from John. This morning, I did read from Mark at our sunrise service. But this is nonetheless a story about the hope of the resurrection. And so from uh, John chapter 12, starting at verse 20, are these words. Now among those who went to worship at the festival were some Greeks, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains... Just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. This is after his entry into Jerusalem. And people come and they say, we just want to see Jesus. And I suspect that's part of the reason why we come to church here on this Easter Sunday is we just want to see Jesus. Wherever we are in our life, we just want to know that there's a God who is active and involved and wants to be a part of our life right now. That it doesn't matter where we are, whether this is our first time in church or we have been in church uh, for several years. I think a lot of times on Easter Sunday we come because we remember when we said our first prayer asking God to come into our life. Or we remember when we were baptized. Or we remember that moment when God felt so real. And on Easter Sunday it's our hope, it's our prayer that that feeling, that that closeness will be there for us again on this day. And so we come to church with the hope and with the prayer, we want to see Jesus. Their cry is our cry as well. And Jesus says to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They're looking for Jesus because they're looking for Jesus with all the miracles, with all the signs that He's had, with all that kind of grandiose claim. But when he says the Son of Man is to be glorified, as much as we might think of, you know, we're lifting up our hands in worship, or we're just praising him, or it's, it's reciting he's risen indeed, it is glorifying him as Lord of Lords. And the Gospel of John, when it talks about glorifying him or lifting him up, he's always saying it in a way that reminds us that his lifting up is also being lifted up on the cross. His glorification is also his crucifixion. That the one who is glorified is the one who also dies. And so there is a very real sense in this story that the glorification of the Son of Man, the glorification of Jesus Christ happens in His obedience to God even in the face of those who want to destroy Him and work against Him. That God is able to glorify indeed to raise up the most broken and destroyed one that the world tries to get rid of. In fact, this is where he says, it's like a seed 
that has to die. And that's a weird way for us to think of seeds, right? That it dies. But it, it, it's an analogy in which a seed, of course, goes into the ground and is buried, just like our dead. And it is covered over and is there. And if you ever have watched one of those like slow motion cameras, right, of what happens afterwards, what happens is like that seed, like the husk falls away, right? And that husk then just deteriorates, but something new happens and life comes up. And so it is that analogy indeed that he says, if the grain is buried and it's in all intents and purposes is dead. In fact, that illustration we, I gave earlier when they said, hey, we want to look at another date tree if we can. 30 seeds sent, 24 of them, good, dead, and gone. But yet he says, if the seeds are buried, life can indeed come up out of that. And so he shows them again that the one who is crucified is indeed the one who brings life and comes to life and shares that life with us. He has a strange uh, turn of phrase here. Those who love their life are going to lose it and those who hate their life are going to gain it. It is a strange phrase indeed. But it is, of course... A way of saying, if we are going to put our life above God, if we are going to put our life uh, at a priority greater than those around us and and our our Lord Jesus Christ, then guess what? We are in danger. And then he talks about, no, if you hate your life, though, you'll, you'll gain it. If you're willing to say, hey, my life doesn't have to be the number one thing. I'm willing to to, to follow those two greatest commandments, love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. There is something more. Now, I've had uh, pastors who have told me throughout my entire life, and they're absolutely right, that this is what is called hyperbole. Hyperbole, right? That literary element where you exaggerate to make your point. I mean, Jesus isn't actually calling us to hate ourselves, but yet, nonetheless, I do want to say this. In probably the last couple of decades, I have heard more than I'd ever heard before in my life. People saying... Some of the very phrases that Jesus just said, things like, I hate my life, or I hate where my life has gone. I've heard those kinds of phrases before. And one thing I want to say, despite the hyperbole, is that Jesus says there is life and there is resurrection yet still for you. That our God has loved and cared and declared meaning in your life, even when you can't see it, to say the resurrection is even for you. And there is hope and there is a future and there is purpose and meaning for you today. That we might find, even in this case of hyperbole, that in in those moments when it doesn't seem hyperbolic, when it seems like, no, this is just really who I am, our Lord Jesus Christ says, no, God's love for you says it doesn't matter how much you might destroy yourself or how much other people have torn you down. I'm here to raise you up. I have a plan and a future and even a present right now for you. This is a story indeed where he says uh, to the people around, this is a future promised for all of us, for those who will follow him. And so I find in this story indeed uh, the promise that our life 
and our faith, no matter where it has gone or how dead it has seemed. And sometimes Easter Sunday is a, is a Sunday where we tune in for the first time. Or we come back for the first time. And maybe we say to ourselves, you know, it's been a while. Or my, my faith is a faith that uh, I've let kind of just fade away. Or even die. But if there's anything I hope we learn from that illustration of the date, is it doesn't matter how long it has been. If it has been for what seems like years, or even centuries, our God can still bring life to us today, and indeed, fruit can still, uh, and we can still bear fruit today. There is life for that which was or has been dead. This Easter Sunday is a celebration that God is still continuing to work with us and promising life for us. Easter is always a look to the future, but is also a promise and assurance that God's Holy Spirit is with us today, breathing new life into us. It is my hope and it is my prayer that this Sunday and in the days to come that we will allow God to bring up something new out of our life and to say, Lord, my life, my faith is in your hands. And wherever I have been or whatever has happened, to trust that he is still raising and bringing life to this day that bears fruit for those around us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are still the God who brings life. I thank you, Lord, that we have a very real story, a very real story even of our world in just just the last couple of years of of life that points all the way back to 2,000 years ago. And Heavenly Father, I can't help but think that you have always been about bringing forth life and helping us, Heavenly Father, to live a life that would reflect your desire, your love, your holiness. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of the resurrection. Thank you for the promise of new life. A new life we don't just have to wonder and hope for, but can indeed begin today. And Heavenly Father, we are trusting and praying for your Holy Spirit to continue the watering and the nurturing to bring forth life out of these husks. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. And it is my prayer and it is my hope that we would be able to go from this place saying, we want to see Jesus. And perhaps even to say, we have seen and experienced Jesus. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today.